All right, Philippians chapter number 2, verse number 19, Paul says this, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. As we said, last week we examined the example of Christ. And what Paul is doing here in in this trilogy of examples, he points to uh, Christ in the earlier part of chapter 2, and we covered that last week. And then tonight we want to look at him pointing to Timothy and Epaphrodites. And there's a couple of perspectives I think we need to maintain with this. One, there's a contextual application. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean that Paul is addressing some issues in the church, and one issue namely in the church at Philippi, which is that there was some discord, some conflict between two of the members of that church, and it seemed to be spilling over and affecting the body at large. So these statements that Paul makes are not divorced from that perspective. Uh, And it's important to maintain that as we study it. But then also we have to be reminded that when Paul sat down to write a letter, uh, though the Holy Ghost in many ways held the pen and guided what was said, and though uh, the inspiration of God set forth eternal truths to us, it was also a piece of correspondence. And so it would carry with it practical notes of importance and Paul telling people things they needed to know as related to the day-to-day matters of life. A good example of that uh, is in 1 Timothy. Whenever uh, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, you know, when you come, be sure you bring my cloak and bring the books uh, unto me. Uh, this is very practical. I mean, it almost sounds like, you know, a text I've received from my wife on the way home, pick up milk or pick up, you know, sour cream. So there are some practical uh, applications that are important and pragmatic truths that are found here. And I want us to be careful that we, we sort of walk that line betwixt those two things and not get, get too dismissive of one or the other. It's important, I think, that we uh, keep that in perspective, keep it in mind. So the reason Paul is writing this letter is to address this issue of conflict in the church. And he has chosen to give these three examples as sort of a remedy, as a cure, as an antidote to this point of conflict. Uh, It shouldn't be any surprise to us that the first thing he points to is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our example in all things. And uh, I've heard this quote several times lately from the pulpit. I don't know why, I guess because I need to hear it. But uh, I've heard several preachers make the quote lately that no man can get a good look at Jesus Christ and walk away impressed with himself. You know, a good perspective on who Christ is, a clear vision and understanding of his majesty and glory and his ministry, his sacrifice, the plan of God that revolves around him and is consumed and occupied with him. A good understanding of that will remedy a great many things in our life. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that the Hebrews writer, when exhorting uh, Jewish Christians uh, to not be ensnared back into Old Testament law, said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, There's a lot in our life that will be solved if we'll get our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he points to Christ as an example of triumph in sacrifice. How that because he was willing to sacrifice and serve uh, the Heavenly Father, and because he was willing to put aside his own interests in favor of, of the Father's interests, God has exalted him. 
The application to these Philippian believers, of course, is that they need to quit, quit seeking their own, and they instead need to try to prefer one another above themselves, and they need to prefer Christ above all, get the right perspective, and it'll, it'll fix a lot of their problems. When he points to Timothy, this is deeply practical. He's telling the church at Philippi, I can't come to you, but I'm going to send Timothy to you. But the reason he's sending Timothy is because he has confidence that the presence and ministry of Timothy will have a soothing and healing effect upon this wound that is present in the church at Philippi. Let's look at Timothy's service and see maybe if we can understand some reasons that that might be the case. Look at verse 19 with me. Paul says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now, before we even move on to what the notes say, can I just remind you to take note of the order of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ there? Over and over and over again, we find, whether it's the Lord Jesus or whether it's Christ Jesus, we find this dual usage of His name. Uh, and sometimes it will be, you know, Jesus Christ. Sometimes it will be Christ Jesus. Well, in the same way, uh, when we see Lord Jesus in conjunction with each other, uh, we're reminded of two things. One, we're reminded of the authority or the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus, that He is absolutely supreme in His authority, that He reigns above all. And let me say it this way, that He has ultimate prerogative in all matters. In other words, He can do as He pleases. You know, that's what sovereignty really means. Sovereignty does not mean that God is the source cause of everything that transpires. What sovereignty means is that God will do as He desires to do, and He can do as He pleases. In that respect, the Lord Jesus is absolutely, unequivocally sovereign. Uh, He has absolute authority, and yet it is followed up. So here we have the sovereign God with all power, with all authority, and yet then He's described by His human name, Jesus. It would have been sufficient, as far as my understanding is concerned, to have said, I trust in the Lord to send Timotheus shortly unto you. But the Holy Ghost went out of his way to remind us that this sovereign, authoritative God that has all the prerogative that could choose himself above others, did not choose himself above others, but rather humbled himself that he might serve others and reach others through his sacrifice. All through this epistle, these little reminders, little notes of of encouragement about what our spirit and attitude is supposed to be when it comes to conflict. I'll tell you what immediately happens when there's conflict. We all start defending our own territory. It's the first thing that happens when you've got countries that are at conflict. What's the first thing they do? They fortify uh, their, their borders and boundaries and defenses. And that's human nature. That's what we do when there's conflict, is we want to fortify our interests, our emotions, our well-being against that other person. But that's not what the Lord Jesus did. Instead of seeking his own, he seeks our well-being, our welfare, our good. So there's that little note, I think, injected in uh, this introduction of who Timothy is. But notice with me, first off, Timothy's commission. Timothy's name here, it's used in an emphatic way. He says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus. It's almost like he's laying heavy weight on Timothy's name, Timotheus, shortly unto you. Why would his name carry such weight? Well, I think for for a couple of reasons. I think for one thing, uh, because the church at Philippi knew who Timothy was. 
Timothy had been with Paul uh, whenever Paul first entered into the to the uh, colony of, of Philippi, and he was there at the prayer meeting when Lydia was one. He was there whenever uh, you know Paul and Silas were beaten and jailed. He was intimately involved with the planting of this church at Philippi, and they knew Timothy and knew him well. We'll say a word more about this later uh, as we get into his example, but let me just merely say this. Uh, Timothy was a name that carried weight because he was a proven individual. Uh, history tells us that Timothy was the first bishop of the church of Ephesus, the first pastor of the church of Ephesus. And we're told that actually the way he died, he died a martyr's death, he was clubbed to death at a feast for Diana, the Ephesian goddess, when he stood up and rebuked the licentiousness of what was taking place. The, the masses raged against him and clubbed him to death, much like they desired to do to Paul uh, whenever he was at Ephesus in the book of Acts, Paul and his companions. So Timothy was the real deal. He was the real deal. And Paul knew that sending Timothy and commanding Timothy to go and minister at the church at Philippi would carry great weight. You know, something interesting, too, I'll just mention this and move on. Uh, we don't actually ever know if, if Timothy ever made it to Philippi. Uh, we'll see here in a few moments that Paul also has expectation that he himself would get to go to Philippi. And Paul was imprisoned on a couple of different occasions. This particular uh, letter, when it was written, it would seem as though there's possibility that Paul maybe was released after this imprisonment for a short while uh, before his final imprisonment. But really, history and Scripture both are silent on the matter. But isn't it interesting that the testimony of a Christian has the ability to go before even their physical presence and make a difference in a situation in, in, in a particular circumstance. Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, he sort of threatened them. He said, uh, get in line, obey. He said, if you don't, I'll have to come and, and be there in the flesh, and I'll have to withstand you face to face, and I'll have to show up, put the house in order. Our testimony carries great weight, and it did with Timothy as well. So we notice his commission, but then notice his commendation. Uh, what does the Apostle Paul say about Timothy? Look at verse number 20. He says, for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. So Timothy's responsibility was twofold. He was to go and minister in Paul's stead. He was to go and pour his life into their life because Paul could not do that in as effective a manner while he was in prison. And he was also supposed to report back. That's why Paul says in verse 19 uh, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. He said when Timothy gets there, he's going to see the lay of the land. He's going to know how things really, really are, and he'll be able to report back to me. But also Paul understood that if he couldn't go, Timothy could go. And Timothy's responsibility was to serve on the behalf of the Apostle Paul. Now notice what Paul says about him. He makes two statements about him. One, that he is like-minded. What this literally means is equal in soul. Uh, Paul considered the love, the compassion the passion, the ambition, the drive that he had. And he saw in Timothy the very same thing. I'll tell you how that encourages me tonight. Is it reminds me that uh, though Paul was a spiritual giant, and undoubtedly he was, he was also a man of like passions as we are. He was flesh and blood. He was somebody whose life was so spectacular because it was so yielded to God. And we may look at Paul and say, Paul was a man without peers, but Paul would not have said that. In fact, he points to the young preacher Timothy and he says, I know that having Timothy there is like having me there. We are equal in soul. Then he says that Timothy is going to naturally care for their uh, state. Uh, what he means by that when he says naturally, it means genuinely, sincerely. 
Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that Timothy was predisposed or could minister effortlessly. One thing you learn about ministry about five minutes into it is there's nothing effortless about it. It's not to say that it was an easy thing for Timothy to do this, but what Paul's saying is that, uh, you know, he has the ability to, in sincerity, in genuineness, in true investment, to minister to the church at Philippi. You know, it's a reminder that in their particular circumstance, when there was conflict, when there was discord in this body, that if they would look to Paul's example and they would listen to Paul's instruction, that the Holy Spirit had the ability in their life to soothe that and repair that and to fix that. I've learned this uh, in, in a few years of pastoring, that all the problems in church, if a church is structured the right way, all the problems in church are people problems. In other words, the way that God constructed the local church, it has no structural or administrative flaws in it. Uh, There are times when you look at secular organizations of human invention, and there may be times that various wings or interests in it come up against cross-purposes because it wasn't well thought out enough. But the local church was structured by God. And as such, it is perfect and flawless in in its administration, in its structure. That doesn't mean it's without problems. In fact, I find that there's a lot of problems in the local church, ours and others. doesn't matter where it is. But those problems are people problems. And they are the product of the fact that we are sinners. We are fallen. Uh, We are not always obedient to the Lord. As such, that means this, that there's nothing broken about the church. What's broken is us individuals in it. And the Holy Spirit has the ability to reconcile and rectify those things if we'll yield unto Him. Paul said, if I can get Timothy there, I know Timothy as a man of, of, of like fashions as me, as a man that is equal in soul and like-minded, I know he'll be able to resolve these issues. So he pointed him as an example of true service. Not only that, look at verse 21. He reminded them that Timothy was an example of total service. He said, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ." Now, again, I would remind you that uh, of the order here. He points to Jesus Christ. Now, here we have it flipped around. It's not the exalted one that chooses to humble himself in service, but rather it is the humble one that because of his service is then exalted and is, is preferred and, uh, and is emphasized and glorified. And I think what Paul is reminding us, it's a dismal statement in some ways, if we're honest, because uh, it doesn't sound very optimistic when he says, all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. He is making a generalized blanket statement. I think there's some hyperbole here. And God's okay with hyperbole. You find it in the Bible. Uh, Context always dictates when it is hyperbole. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, I know that is hyperbole. I know that that is, uh, in other words, it is exaggeration for, for effect. You know how I know that? Because when he said all seek their own, he's saying that in the context of Timothy, who was not a man who sought his own, but rather sought the Lord. So what he's trying to say is, as a general rule in society, the bend of human disposition is not to seek the Lord's things, but to seek our things. And in light of that, he points to the rarity of Timothy's example. That he is a man unlike any other. He's a man that has preferred and chosen. And by the way, it doesn't just say, say the things which are of Christ, but it says the things which are Jesus Christ, possessively speaking. Meaning that Timothy's desire was not to build his bank account or, or his retirement or his friend's pool or, or, or his prominence or, or his influence. And God's not against any of those things, but those things are, were not the priority in Timothy's life. They should not be the ultimate priority in our life. 
they hold a place, and I don't think God begrudges us seeing the needs that we may have in those areas. But as far as Timothy was concerned, he would let God meet those needs, and he would desire to pursue the things that belong to Jesus Christ. He looked at this little church at Philippi and said, I know the devil's after him, but he doesn't deserve them. He didn't die for them. He didn't buy them. He didn't purchase them with his blood. The Lord Jesus did. And so I'll do everything I can to make sure they're in a rightful condition. So we see the rarity of this example, but there's also a rebuke here. We need to be reminded, man, that there's some things that are more important. There are some things in life that tower above the paltry matters uh, that occupy our day-to-day responsibilities. It's not to say we don't have those responsibilities, but how, how foolish we'll feel if we spend our whole life for temporal things, step right inside of glory and have to admit and acknowledge that we've wasted the time that we could have spent for the Lord. So we see the rebuke of this example. He was an example of total service. But not only that, he was an example of tested service. Uh, Look at verse 22. He mentions why he was sending Timothy in particular. He says, But you know the the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. So he makes two statements there. First, he points to the fact that the Philippians knew Paul's love for Timothy. Uh, they understood that uh, Paul had a, a familial, if we can use that terminology, love, as a father with a son. As some people speculated, this could mean there was actually some blood relationship, but Scripture roundly condemns that. You say, well, how do we know? Well, because uh, the Bible tells us that his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, were Jewish women, and that Timothy was half Greek. He was half Gentile, which is the reason that Paul circumcised him before they went uh, into Europe. Because he, he uh, or, I'm sorry, before they went out on a missionary journey, because Paul understood that they would go to the synagogue first. And uh, he did not want any accusations to be leveled against Timothy, that he was some sort of infiltrator or subverter. So uh, he made sure that Timothy was circumcised before they went. Uh, we know that Paul, of course, was not Greek, <coughs> that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he will say just one chapter over. So Paul was not the flesh and blood father of, of Timothy, but he had won him to the Lord. Uh, he had raised him up in the gospel, and they had a relationship where Paul loved Timothy and trusted him. Not only that, the Philippians knew Timothy's loyalty to Paul. Uh, I, I'm interested in the word that Paul uses here. He says, you know the proof. Of him, The word proof there has the idea of something, uh, it's actually used several times in your Bible. Sometimes it's given to us as the word trial, trial. Sometimes it's given to us as the word experiment. Uh, and then sometimes it's given to us as the word experience. In other words, it denotes someone that has been tested and proven. Uh, In other words, the love that Timothy had towards Paul had been proven to him. His willingness to serve with Paul in the gospel. He was a man who had hazarded his life. He was a man who had proven himself. He was a worthy emissary for the Apostle Paul to send. So he points to why Paul was sending him. And then also it points to when Paul was sending Timothy. I want to read a portion out of this commentary because it says it far better than I ever could. But we see basically two things in verse uh, 23 and 24. Look at verse 23. Paul says, Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. Now listen to what the commentator says about this particular verse and this moment in the text. He says, A review of Paul's circumstances is in order here. It can be inferred from various comments and references in the Philippian epistle that a later rather than an earlier date in Paul's first Roman imprisonment, 
must be assigned to this letter. His imprisonment had become more restricted. He was in the palace, the praetorium, the barracks of the praetorian guard, rather than in his own hired house, as at first in Acts 28.30. He had been in bonds long enough for the Philippians to have heard of his imprisonment, to have sent Epaphroditus, and to have heard of Epaphroditus' arrival and illness. Paul's bonds had become widely known and had furthered the gospel. The, epistle to the, uh, the epistles to the Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon had already been written. We can form an idea of Paul's circumstances from these inferences and from secular history. In the second year of Paul's imprisonment, important changes took place at Rome. Burrus, the praetorian prefect, the captain of the guard, died. Nero divorced Octavia and married a Jewish proselyte named Papea. This unscrupulous woman arranged for the murder of Octavia, showing strong partiality to the Jewish people and had little sympathy for Christianity. Nero appointed to the position of Praetorian the prefect, the man who had promoted his marriage to Papea. This prefect was Tigellinus. I'll get it said here in a second. A veritable monster of iniquity. So Paul wrote with some doubt on the human level about the ultimate outcome of his trial. The trial date was nearer, but the outcome was more uncertain, at least if one looked only at the circumstances. In the praetorium attached to the palace, Paul was kept under closer custody. But God shielded Paul from new dangers that threatened. Pallas, the brother of Felix, and a favorite of Nero, died. So one source of danger was removed. You remember Felix had no sympathy to the Apostle Paul. And Tigellinus ignored Paul's case. No doubt the prefect thought it was beneath his notice. In the meantime, in spite of all the gnawing suspense, Paul maintained his resolute trust in the Lord and continued as much as was possible to get on with the work of God. Since his own case might hang in the balance for a while, and since he felt that someone ought to go to Philippi and go soon to deal with the squabbles in the church, he proposed to send Timothy. So it's apparent from this verse that he intended on sending Timothy immediately. Uh, Not only that, in verse 24, we find his anticipation of dramatic news soon. You say, what do you mean? Well, he says in verse 24, but I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. So these statements would seem on the face of him to conflict. He says, I'm sending Timothy because I can't come. But then he turns around and says, but I plan on coming soon. What does that reveal to us? Well, we, we, could, we could wax at length about Paul's faith in the Lord, his commitment to the will of God. But it tells me this, that the conflict at the church of Philippi, though it is mentioned as being a slight thing, I mean, it really doesn't weigh very prominently in the, in the Philippian epistle. Evidently, Paul understood it was so dangerous that he needed to send someone immediately. It's a reminder that the conflicts that we engage with, especially amongst other believers, especially in, in, in the church, uh, they can get out of hand quick. I've seen that happen over the years. And you, if you've been in church any amount of time, you've probably seen that happen over the years. Something will be said that nothing really uh, you know, offensive is meant by it, and then that thing will snowball, and pretty soon other folks get involved. I'll tell you this, man, it, it, it's, it's easier to light a fire than it is to stop a fire. And when that fire is lit, you know, that's what James said about the tongue. It's a fire set on hell. It it, it destroys the course of nature, set upon fire the course of nature. Once that thing gets started, it 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 can grow out of hand in a moment. We should guard carefully how we use, as James would warn us, how we use our tongue, our words, and also our disposition and our willingness to broker peace and to let these things be buried by the grace of God. So we have Timothy, and he shows us triumph in service. And then Paul turns his attention to another individual. Verse 25, he says this, Yet I supposed it necessary 
to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that she had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. So the commentator, and this is how it reads in your notes, has this listed as Epaphroditus triumph in sickness. Uh, but I want to I want to broaden that a little bit if I can, and merely point to Epaphroditus as an example of triumph in suffering in general. Sickness is a form of suffering. Anybody that's ever been sick knows that. But it doesn't have to be physical ailment. Uh, Epaphroditus, though, was a man that when tragedy entered his life, instead of yielding to that thing and Allowing it, it may have crippled his body, but he did not let it cripple his spirit or his service to the Lord inasmuch as he was able to serve. Uh, is a good example to us that if he can overcome what he was facing, you and I too can overcome what we're facing. And I guess one of the things that in the greater context of this conflict at the church that we ought to be reminded of is this. Everybody's going through something. I don't care who you are. Everybody's going through something. When we're engaged in conflict with another believer, we need to be reminded that we, we look at ourselves and say, Oh boy, poor pitiful me, it's so hard on me, I can't believe I'm being treated this way. But just be reminded, man, that person's going through something too. Epaphroditus was an individual who said, I may be going through something, but I'm not going to allow what I'm going through to be foisted upon others and to add to their burden and to add to their sorrow and suffering. So let's take a few uh, notes about this particular man. Let's make a few comments about him. First, in verse 25, we are reminded of his ministry. He said, I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And Paul says three things about him, that he is his brother. He says, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier. Then he turns around, he makes a word about, uh, gives us a word about his uh, ministry from the church at Philippi. He says, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. So it would appear that Epaphroditus was an individual from the church at Philippi that was sent to Paul whenever the church at Philippi learned of Paul's imprisonment. And it would seem as though their attitude was, we want to do something for Paul, but we can't be there. And if we can't be there, we want to send somebody that can, that can minister in our stead. I think Epaphroditus could maybe be called one of the world's first helps missionaries. You know, a helps missionary is somebody that goes, maybe not with the design of planting a church, but they go to help somebody that is planting a church and to minister with and work alongside them. Well, Epaphroditus was a man that was sent to minister to the Apostle Paul. He was sent by the Philippians, uh, or sent from Paul back to the Philippians uh, after his sickness uh, he was recovered from. So notice a few things. One, notice what Paul thought of him. He called him a brother. Now, again, this is not a blood relationship, uh, but rather it is a spiritual term. And consider this, especially in the context of what he just said about Timothy. I don't think in any way Paul was denigrating Timothy when he said, Timothy's like my son and I'm like his father. I think that was a term of, of endearment and reverence and respect, and it was a term of love that he had towards Timothy. But think about if Timothy's his son, Epaphrodites is his brother. 
And it is almost as though he is, in an emphatic way, wanting to remind the church at Philippi that Epaphrodites is his peer, is his equal. You know, in order for any conflict to be reconciled and and to be dealt with, there has to be a certain measure of respect for the authority that is attempting and striving to reconcile that thing. And I think the importance of that truth is why the Apostle Paul, he builds up Epaphrodites. By the way, he does the same thing in in other instances. You remember whenever he sent the pastor uh, of the church at Colossae back to Colossae, Paul goes out of his way to build up and talk about that this was a, a man of God and he is your preacher and he is your minister. Because Paul understood that there had to be a measure of respect and reverence and authority there in order for that thing to be brokered. The Apostle Paul didn't treat Epaphroditus like he was some second class citizen. Man, he said he is a brother. He is somebody that that is worthy of reverence. He is somebody that is worthy of being revered. Notice not only what Paul thought of him, but notice what Paul wrought with him. He, He says two things. One, he's a fellow servant. He is a companion in labor. We might use the term co-worker. They had been laboring together in Rome, winning those praetorian guards to Christ. And I'm sure there was follow-up work that Paul couldn't do because he couldn't leave those shackles. But Epaphroditus was on the job, on the spot, helping the preacher, helping the, the missionary, helping the apostle, doing whatever it took to do what Paul was unable to do. Not only that, but he describes him as a fellow soldier. He was somebody that had suited up in the armor of God and was willing to wage spiritual war against the influences of hell so that people could be one to Christ. Man, that's the kind of person that I want. That's the kind of person that I want by my side. That's the kind of person I want to be. And Paul says, if I send Epaphroditus back to you, I know he'll make a difference. One of the great encouragements we can gain when we have yielded to that thing of conflict and maybe there's bitterness or maybe there's hurt feelings is to look at the example of others who have endured trials and suffering but continued on serving the Lord in spite of it. So we see that he was sent to the Philippians by Paul, but he had been sent by the Philippians to Paul. That's what he says uh, at the close of that verse. He says, he's your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. So uh, notice how he was sent. Again, this term messenger, uh, it denotes a minister or a high official. Uh, it is a term of honor and reverence. He's wanting to remind them that Epaphroditus, uh, he, he, he's a real man of God. He is a real minister. And that in their stead, notice how he had served, he had ministered, Paul says, to my wants. You know something I noticed there, and, and maybe we make too much of this distinction. I understand that the term want in Scripture means a deficit of something. Uh, you, know, I, you know, for instance, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But I, I think it would be fair to maybe make a distinction here that Epaphroditus' service to Paul was so absolute that he was not just there to meet Paul's want, his needs, but his wants as well. He, he was there whatever Paul needed to try to minister in the stead of the Philippians, to try to be a blessing to the man of God. So we see his ministry. But then notice his malady, and we'll uh, notice two things about it. Look at verse 26. It says, For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Notice the selflessness of his suffering. It appears that either in the journey or shortly after he arrived there, we don't know, but it appears that Epaphroditus fell seriously, seriously ill. 
But notice the phrase that's used here. It says he was full of heaviness. Uh, that term, the only other time it's used in your Bible is uh, when the Lord Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it talked about he, he was full of anguish and sorrow. And this is what prompted him to ask Peter, James, and John to watch with him in prayer. It's the same kind of anguish that led to him sweating, as it were, uh, drops of blood. And that suffering that he experienced in the garden, he did not experience for his own benefit, but rather for the benefit of the Father and ultimately for the benefit of you and me. I love, we sang uh, yesterday morning in, in the service, and we, man, we don't sing it enough. For me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will but thine. He, he took my sin and my sorrow. He bore him to Calvary. Thinking about what Christ did in, in, in Gethsemane. Not just at Calvary, but in Gethsemane. He, he took my sin and my sorrow and he made it his very own. He, he had no tears for his own grief, uh, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Uh, what a blessing it is to know how the Lord suffered on our behalf. The love, the compassion, the dedication he had to us. And that's the same term that's used here about Epaphroditus. But it was not that he was so concerned for himself. Think about this. You ever, you ever meet someone so sweet that it makes you hate them? You ever met anyone like that? It just what it does is it convicts you of your own self. I hang around Walridge people, so it don't happen very often. But that was Epaphroditus. He was tore up from the floor up. But for what reason? For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness. Why? Because that she had heard that he had been sick. He wasn't tore up that he was sick. He was tore up that the church of Philippi was tore up because he was sick. He was so burdened. Now, again, in the greater context, what does this teach us? Well, it teaches us this. If a person's going to minister effectively to others, he has to have a great and selfless love for them. Paul didn't worry about whether Epaphroditus would be compassionate enough and merciful enough and, 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 and committed enough if he sent him back to Philippi to help these two sisters work this thing out in the Lord. Because this was a man that when he was at death's door, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about the church at Philippi. And he was saying, I, I just, I hope they don't worry too much about me. We see the selflessness of his suffering. But notice the seriousness of his sickness in verse 27. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only. But on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. A few important things I think we ought to say here. The seriousness of his sickness was not just physical. Paul readily acknowledges that he was at death's door. But notice how Paul's language turns. He says, God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So I want to make just sort of a, a, a historical and doctrinal observation here. I want you to notice that Paul did not heal Epaphroditus. Now, there are instances of God allowing uh, Paul to be used uh, to administer healing in the book of Acts. Uh, but, you know, for people that say that there's TV preachers walking around healing people and this and that, my question is always, why don't they ever visit the, the cancer ward at St. Jude's? You know, why don't they ever visit the hospitals where children are suffering and dying? And they'll never do such a thing. They would say that it was because those kids couldn't have faith, wouldn't be able to practice faith or strong enough faith. That's why they don't. But I believe Epaphroditus, a man that was willing to die in the service of God, had more faith than most of us could ever hope to have. Paul still did not and could not heal him. So healing in the New Testament was a sign gift. It was never given to the Gentiles because the Gentiles seek after wisdom, but the Jews seek after a sign. 
So early in the New Testament church, there were some sign gifts that were given. Uh, tongues was one, healing was one. And by the way, tongues was never a speaking of gibberish. Never one instance anywhere in the Bible was tongues speaking of gibberish. Uh, it was always a known, intelligible language. And inasmuch as it was supernatural, and I think there's places that tongues are described not in a supernatural way, but rather just in a divine proclivity to speak other languages. Uh, but there are times that it was supernatural and it was divine. And God granted people the ability uh, to be able to speak in a language that was not their own, but it was always a known language. It was never gibberish. But tongues was an example of a sign gift, and healing was an example of a sign gift. But even when Paul writes this, I mean, we're talking in like the early 60s, like A.D. 62 probably is when this was written. Paul did not have the ability, nor did he ever have the ability to at his own discretion heal people, because it's God that heals people. But even at this moment, we don't have any, any indication that he tried to heal Epaphroditus or ever thought he could heal Epaphroditus. God raised up Epaphroditus, and whenever Paul speaks of it, he says this, God had mercy on him. So he was at death's door, but I want you to think about this. Paul says it it would have been a a terrible thing for Epaphroditus to suffer and to die and to not be able to go on living. But he says, you know, you have no clue the spiritual impact that being robbed of this man would have made in my life. One of the things I admire about Paul, and please forgive me if I'm, if I'm a broken record, but this, this is so heavily featured in this passage of Scripture, is the great love and appreciation that Paul had for Epaphroditus. He says, man, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow if he had been taken away from me. How many of you have heard this before? You don't know uh, how much you love something until it's gone, or you don't know how good you've got it until it changes, or something to that effect. One of the things I love about Paul is he had a good habit of giving people their flowers while they were living, and appreciating and having gratitude for the people that God was using in his life. I was riding in the car the other day, uh, me and, and my wife were. I can't remember how this came up, but we were just talking about the people in our church that invest in people's lives. And um, I was talking in particular about the uh, couple that works with our children's ministry. And, you know, I, I called them by name. You know their names, but this will go out on the Internet. I'm not going to mention their names. But I called them by name and I said, man, I never want to take for granted how much they're investing in our kids' lives, our oldest son's life in particular. So much of his knowledge and grasp of the Bible. And by the way, not just him, but the, the people that work and, and assist in that children's ministry. It couldn't happen uh, if there weren't people that were laboring in that children's ministry with them and helping them uh, to be able to do that effectively. Same thing's true of Sunday school, man. Our Sunday school teachers, people pouring in the lives of our kids. And I told my wife, I said, I never want to take for granted the time that these people are putting into my kids' lives. Because it's so easy to do. It's so easy to reduce people's service to the Lord as just something that people do. And not to consider the great difference they're making in our lives by sacrificing, you know, studying lessons and getting together plans and getting illustrations together, being faithful to be in the house of God and being in place. I ain't just talking about our children's workers in in children's church. I'm talking about Sunday school teachers, too, and, and our youth pastor and his wife. All these people that are pouring their lives into our young people. And I never want to be guilty of taking for granted the great effort that they're giving. I want to be like Paul. I I want to appreciate people now in the moment. And this is true for me as a pastor with the faithfulness of our church people and them laboring for all of our ministries the way that they do. You know, I I want to recognize what a void it would be 
if they were gone tomorrow. And Paul was that way. He recognized uh, how serious a thing it would have been if Epaphroditus had been taken. And then notice not only his ministry and malady, we'll say a few things about this in close, but notice his memory. Look at verse number 28 and 29 and what Paul required of these believers. He said, I send him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again ye may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Again, I would remind you that when there is a, 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 an example or an illustration of how quickly we can lose something that's precious to us, it often becomes more precious to us. And Paul said, you know, I almost lost Epaphroditus. And, and how, how detrimental that would have been and how difficult that would have been and what a blow that would have been to me personally. And then he turns around and writes to the church at Philippi and he says, now I'm sending him back to you. He says, I do this more carefully. And he doesn't mean I'm cautious, but he's saying I do it with more care, with more consideration. He's saying I'm doing this and I know what a gem that I'm sending to you. I know what a treasure that I am entrusting you with. And in that context, he asked them to do three things. In verse 28, he says that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice that I may be the less sorrowful. You know, there's nothing better than someone loving a gift that you gave him. And there's probably not many things more disappointing than someone not appreciating something that you did for them or something that you gave them. Paul said, I'm sending a treasure to you. So when he gets there, you rejoice in the Lord. Because if I know that you appreciate the sacrifice I'm making so that you can have him there ministering, it'll go a long way to giving me satisfaction. It'll go a long way to removing sorrow from my suffering. He asked them to rejoice. Not only that, verse 29, he asked them to receive him. He says, receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness. In other words, as they would have received him, he wants them to receive Epaphroditus. Paul says, I'm not going to go to all this trouble to send this fellow back to you, only for you to dismiss him or ignore him or berate him. Make sure if you really appreciate, you know what I like when I give someone a gift, you know what I like more than anything? I like to know that they use it. I like to know that they use it, that it's something that is helpful, that it's something that improves their life, that it's something that they're putting to work and putting to use in their daily life. Paul says, put him to use, receive him. Accept what he says. Not only that, but they said he, he uses the word reward. Reward Epaphroditus. He says, hold such in reputation. The term reputation is used also by uh, the Apostle Peter. First Peter chapter 2. When he's describing the disdain that the world has for the Lord Jesus, he lays that beside the love and the value that the Father holds towards the Son. When he says that he is a, a precious cornerstone, that unto you which believe he is precious. That's the same word he uses. He says, count Epaphroditus a precious individual. Hold him in reputation. Let him know that he means something to you. Let him know that he has value in your eyes. Notice not only what Paul required of these believers, but notice what Paul remembered of this brother. Look at verse 30. He says, because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. When he says not regarding here, it, uh, this is going to be a mind bender. You ready? You know what it means when it says not regarding? It means disregarding. <laughs> That's deep waters, isn't it? 
But when we think of something disregarded, what we think of is something that's just set to the side or something that we care nothing about. When Epaphroditus was faced with dying in the service of the Lord, he just shrugged his shoulders. said, I'll just keep on going for the Lord. It's not my life that matters. My life is in the hands of God. All that matters is that I keep serving the Lord, that I keep pushing forward. He had shown a great commitment to keep serving the Lord. But then notice his companionship to the Apostle Paul. He says, this is why he did it, to supply your lack of service toward me. I don't believe Paul means this in a critical sense. He has gone out of his way and he will go on to acknowledge the great gift that the the Philippian church had given when they sent Epaphroditus to him. And he's going to acknowledge the great love and self-sacrifice that they feel towards him. So I don't think he's rebuking them. I don't don't think he's getting a, a, a shot in towards them when he says to supply your lack of service toward me. But here's what I think he is trying to get them to remember. That this all began when Epaphroditus, when the church at Philippi got together and said, we need somebody to go see Brother Paul and minister to him because we can't go. And Epaphroditus stood up and said, I'll go. I'll go. He was there on the part of the church at Philippi. And Paul says, now I'm sending him back to you. And don't ever forget that he was willing to risk his life and he almost lost his life because he was willing to serve on your behalf. Let me say this in closing. You might say, well, that's good, preacher. But what does this have to do with Syntechian Yodas? Epaphroditus, along with Timothy, allegedly, definitely Epaphroditus, uh, are getting ready to walk into the church house at Philippi and address these ladies and tell them that the Lord's not pleased with the conflict, that it's hurting the church, that none of it could be as important as the work that they have to do. And it would carry great weight that Paul was sending two men that were proven individuals, proven in their love for the Lord, proven in their love for Paul, and proven in their love for the church at Philippi. You know what? God gives us experienced voices in life and people whose testimonies carry weight. Let us never count it a cheap thing when people that God has used speak wisdom into our life.